Hey, we are so thankful that you're taking the time to tune into Grumwatt Church's podcast. It's our hope that this is an encouragement to you as you draw closer to Jesus. If you'd like to find out more about all things Grumwatt or for more info on our in-person gatherings, you can check us out at grumwatt.com. Now lean in. We're expectant for how God is going to use this time to speak to you today. One of the privileges that we have in this life, and maybe even more so in, in our country, is that we are, we are free. We, we are a free people. Each of us, we, we possess free will with the ability to make decisions on our own as, as we see fit. Now, this certainly both benefits us at times and probably hinders us at different points in, in our lives. But my free will, for instance, it allows me to spend my money however I want. If, if I want to buy a new pair of shoes, I can do that. If I want to give a bunch of money away, well, that's, that's my decision. My free will, it allows me to choose to only be with my wife, but, but that free will, right, could, could just as easily choose to be with another woman, to, to have an affair if I, if I so chose. So, so, so I think most of us, right, we appreciate that we have free will, but, but we all recognize that when used improperly, it, it, it can get us into a little bit of, of trouble. We also, as people living in America, we live right in a free country. You're free to make a living however you see fit. You're free to marry who you want. You're free to practice any religion you want. But, but there are some laws. There, there are taxes that, for the most part, we do recognize, well, those rules, they've been put into place, at least initially, for, for the betterment of people and the, the betterment of society as a whole. And, and when you compare the freedom that we have in America to, to other countries around the world, you, you recognize, well, we, we got it pretty good. We value our freedom, but placing it head and shoulders above, well, almost anything else in our lives. But what's sort of interesting is even though we place such a high emphasis on being free, we don't actually live into that freedom to the maximum capacity that, that we're able to. See, see all of us, we, we willingly allow our freedom to be restricted. And I would say actually a lot more than probably any of us realize. We allow our freedom to be restricted by, by one question in particular. This one question, which as we're going to explore is really more of a fear, it, it controls our lives so much more than, than any of us have likely considered. The, the, the question, what will he think of me? What, what will she think of me? What, what, what will those people think of, of me? So yes, we are free people, but, but, but this question, this, this fear, it, it infringes upon that freedom more than, more than any other force in our lives. I mean, just think about it. This question plays a role in virtually every decision that you and I make. Human beings, both Christians and, and non-Christians alike, we are slaves to this question. Unless you think that's, that's overstated, just, just think about it really practically. This question, at least to some extent, it dictates whether or not you make that career change, whether you major in this or, or that, what, what car you drive, what neighborhoods you move into, what types of questions you even ask in certain conversations, how you dress, what type of phone we buy, where we spend our free time, where it is that you go on vacation. I mean, just think about it even here just on, on Sunday mornings. Whether or not you actually stand and sing during worship, whether or not you might actually put, put a hand up, whether or not you've gotten baptized or not, praying in front of other people, even down to where people sit on Sunday mornings. 
There is very, very little in our lives that this question does not play some sort of a role. So, so yeah, we're free people, but, but, but maybe not as free as we think. We are ruled by what others think of us, but by what others might think of us. I was having a conversation a couple of years ago with a, with a friend and you know, he was almost through residency. He was, he was about to finally step into his long-awaited career as a physician. And we're sitting there over breakfast and he had kind of out of the blue said, hey, can we sit down and talk? And you, know, you could tell it was just something gnawing at him. And he's like, I've only told this to my wife and now to you, Shay, I don't want to be a doctor. And I was kind of like, wait, what? And he's like, I've never wanted to be a doctor. And he's like, it's making me depressed thinking that this is what I'm going to end up doing for the rest of my life. And I was like, well, why are you doing this then? Why did you ever step into med school? And then residency, like, why did you walk down this path? And he's like, my dad's a doctor. And ever since I was a little boy, I've just felt this pressure from my dad and my parents in particular that that, that, that is what I have to do. And so here I am, I'm about to step into this, and I, I, don't, even, I don't even want to. Church, think of the implications of that. Hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt. 12 years of his life pursuing a career that he doesn't even want for himself all because of the pressure of how his father would perceive him if he didn't walk down that path. Just months ago, having a conversation with a guy and uh, he had kind of excitedly told me, he's like, I know what my next step is in, in, in this whole faith journey. He was relatively new to his faith and he's like, I'm I'm supposed to get baptized. And he's like, you know, I just can no longer reconcile the fact, like Jesus is just really, really clear about this, right? It's believe and get baptized. Not believe, wait five years, and then maybe get baptized. like, believe and get baptized. He's like, I know that that is my next step. And I'm like excited. I'm ready to sign him up for the next baptism service. And then he looked right at me, and then he kind of put his head down, and he goes, but I'm not going to. I'm like, wait, what? This is kind of like (laughs) both ends of the spectrum. He goes, yeah, as you know, I came from the Catholic Church, and that was huge. Like when, when I took that step, I felt all kinds of guilt for my parents, and in particular, my mother. And I just feel like at this point, if, if I was to move forward and get baptized because I was baptized as a baby that, that, that to my mother, that would really feel like rubbing salt on an open wound. So, yeah, I, I know I'm supposed to do that, but I'm not going to. Keep in mind, that this is a grown man. He's in his 60s. And, and later on in the conversation, he said this so casually. He's like, maybe I'll do it when she dies. I've shared this story before. When I was in high school, I went to a rather affluent high school, and I didn't really fit the mold for that. My parents were not that wealthy. In fact, they, they, they scraped by to send me to this private high school. And one of the things there, when you're amongst all these wealthy kids that just frankly have a lot more than you, you want to fit in. And so I remember my junior year, and I've told this story. I went to the mall and proudly bought a $450 pair of Prada sunglasses, all because I was so worried about how my friends were perceiving me and that maybe if I wore this really expensive pair of sunglasses, that they would like me more. They would affirm me more. And about six months into that, I thought, what in the heck am I doing? I had to work like two weeks for, for a pair of stupid sunglasses that look like snow goggles. And like, so I put them on eBay and I got most of my money back. And what I haven't told many people is about a year later, I did it again. I went to the same store and this time bought a pair of Dior sunglasses. And I don't remember exactly how much they cost, but they were well over 200 bucks. Did, did the same thing overall because I was so consumed with like, okay, what are these people around me going to think of me if I don't have nice things like them? Now, now admittedly, sometimes the, those stories, they're pretty funny. I, I, until we again examine our own lives and we realize that most of what we do is at least partially determined by this one question, which, as alluded to a moment ago, is is less of a question and and more of a fear, traditionally referred to as as the fear of man. 
But, but, but put in simpler terms, the fear of what others will think of me. I'm not going to take that job because of what my dad might think of me. I'm going to wear these clothes because I think she will like them. I'm going to buy these things because it'll make me appear a certain way to those certain people. I'm going to insert these stories into this particular conversation so, so that maybe he will like me more. I'm telling you, that this fear has a stranglehold on our lives more than probably just about all of us would like to admit. Which on one hand, if you're paying attention right now, you, you could kind of just take an apathetic mindset and say, okay, who cares? I mean, everyone, in fact, as you just pointed out there, preacher boy, everybody lives like this. So, so why do I care? Isn't this just kind of how the world operates? And, and while that's not untrue, I'm guessing by virtue of the fact that, that you tuned in here today, that, that you're watching this service, that there's something inside of you wondering if, if there's anything more to this life than, well, this, this life, that, that, that what it is that you're currently experiencing, what, what, what you're currently living into, that, that, that this rat race that we call life with, with its obsession with, with what others might think of us has, has maybe proven exhausting. And, and you're wondering if this Jesus guy might actually be offering something not just different, but... Is it possible that, it, that he's offering something to you and I, something that maybe is, is better? A, a way to break free from the monotony of this life, the, the chasing of my tail nature of this life, and tap into something that stretches beyond you. And, and what I'd like each of us to consider this morning, and this isn't just for the person who's starting to explore, but for maybe even more, the individual who's been at this church thing for a long time. I'd like you to consider that the reason your life has perhaps been lacking in fulfillment to this point, that the reason that you've never seen God show up like that in, in your life, that the reason that maybe you don't feel as content and, and enriched as you thought you'd maybe feel by this point in your life is, is because you're being ruled by, by what others think of you. And in turn, I absolutely believe this because my own life has shown me this. It's it's primarily that fear that is, in fact, preventing this. In turn, you're not allowing a movement of God to occur in your life that, that, that won't only impact your life, but, but all the lives around you. We're, we're so obsessed with, with what others think of us that, that we all but completely forget what, what God thinks of us. We're so consumed with the fear of man that we give almost no thought to what we might be missing out on if we would just submit to his plan. It's been said many, many times by men far wiser than me that the most tolerated sin in our churches is fear, and more than any other fear, again, that fear of man. And we'll talk about on Sunday morning sexual sin and what do we do with our money and consumerism and lying and idolatry, but for whatever reason, we're slow to call this out when we see it in ourselves and the people around us. And there's probably a lot of different reasons for this, not the least of which being kind of that feeling of hypocrisy. It's like, how, how could I possibly call this out in, in him and in her when it's, when it's still so prevalent in me? But, but, but church, the, the longer we obsess over what others think of us and use that as our primary tool in how we exercise our free will, the, the longer we'll miss out on what God has waiting for each of our lives. And I promise you, I'm not just using that phraseology for dramatic effect. The movement of God that, that awaits each of us. 
what we're unpacking this morning, value number five of seven, what we expect God to, to move. And as we're going to uncover in a lot more detail, our obsession with what others think of us and allowing that to supersede anything that God may want to do in our lives is hindering ultimately the better that God has waiting for you and the people around you. We're in this series right now titled Different, where we're exploring our seven church values that reveal our heart. What is it that makes Grumlaw different? What is that distinct calling that God has placed upon this faith community? And we've been excited to reveal these to you. They are, of course, belong before you believe. We uphold biblical truth, contagious joy, live generously as we explored last week. We expect God to move, assume the best, and obedience is the win. If you're new around here, or maybe you haven't been here for the entirety of this series, I'm telling you, you owe it to yourself. And I really mean that. As you're considering laying down roots here in this faith community, you owe it to yourself to understand what it is that we're all about around here. And you can get yourself caught up at grumlaw.com slash messages, or you can find those sermons via podcast under Grumlaw Church on iTunes, Spotify, wherever it is that you grab those podcasts. Now, there are a lot, I will tell you this, a lot of different stories uh, that I could use to illustrate the point that we're making this morning. In fact, uh, this is one of the most common threads that we see all throughout Scripture, all throughout this book called the Bible. And, and that pattern goes something like this. Uh, man obsesses over what others will think of him. And, and I want you to keep in mind, it's not just a men thing. I'm using man, him here because most of the stories feature hard-headed men, but I promise you this is just as true as of females as well. We obsess over what others think of us. And then number two, God grabs man's attention. In fact, God actually is trying constantly to grab our attention. If we would just turn to him and we'd listen up, again, not to beat a dead horse, if we would distract ourselves for a moment from what others think of us. So, so God usually does something kind of dramatic. He grabs man's attention and then man places himself in submission to, to, to God. Usually, sadly, for a pretty short period of time because we're emotionally fickle people. But, but at least for a moment, he or she is obedient and does what, what God has been advocating. Now, usually we take forever to finally get to that step and God is so incredibly patient in this way, but we finally take that step of obedience. And, and then, and this is really what we're gonna hone in on this morning, this is the key, there, there is a spirit of expectation among the people. Th that is, that individual or group of people, they beg, usually through a combination of confession, prayer, fasting, worship, that they beg for God to do what only he can do. There is a spirit of expectation that is birthed from recounting what God has done in the past and understanding that that same God with that same power is still on his throne and he longs to come through again. And then, voila, a movement of God occurs that serves not only to impact the life of the individual or the group of people who started on that journey, but all the people who stand as witnesses to said movement of God. All throughout Scripture, all throughout the pages of history, we see this exact same pattern play out. You see it with our Old Testament, that first half of the Bible, those heroes, Abraham, David, Moses, Elijah, Esther. We see it in the New Testament with Peter, people like Peter and Paul, the first century church as a whole. We see this with every great church revival, the Great Awakening, the Second Great Awakening, the Businessmen's Revival, Urban Revivals, the Jesus Movement. Every personal testimony in this church of a movement of God in someone's life follows this exact same pattern, and perhaps most notably, an expectation that God is going to move. So again, I, I could have picked a lot of different stories here that we could have unpacked, and for whatever reason, I felt like God was pointing to Joshua. 
This is an individual that we're introduced to, again, in the Old Testament, that that first half of the Bible. Uh, And it's aptly titled, this book, Joshua, because it follows around Joshua and his leadership over the Israelite people, God's chosen people. Now, Joshua, uh, for those of you who've probably maybe not heard of him before, he was Moses, and you've probably heard of Moses before. He was Moses' successor. And Moses was the guy who led God's chosen people, the Israelites, out from under the oppression of the Egyptians and Pharaoh. And so needless to say, some pretty big shoes to fill for Joshua. And most notably, he was tasked with the individual who's going to finally bring the Israelites into the promised land. This land that had been promised to the Israelites now for literally generations. And there's even a reminder right there. God's time frame is often different than ours. Many, many people, most notably Abraham and Moses, they went to their graves without seeing themselves this promise come to fruition. It was originally promised to Abraham. He went to his grave not seeing it come to fruition. Moses went to his grave. He didn't see the promised land come to fruition, but yet they still trusted that God would come through because of who he is, because he is faithful, because he is to be trusted. Now, now one of the frequent hiccups with the promised land was that oftentimes entire people groups were standing in the way. And, and so the Israelites, like oftentimes as they felt so inadequate, they're like, we got to take over this entire, like, oh my goodness, it's so intimidating. And then God would come through yet again. And the next town up was a town called Jericho, which served as sort of like a gateway city to Canaan, which was actually going to serve as the promised land. In short order, if you don't conquer Jericho, you're not getting to the promised land. But, but yet there was one problem. This was a massive, a locked, a fortified city with these massive walls protecting the city, and there was no simple way to penetrate these walls. To the Israelites, to the people, they were like, this is great, we've come this far, but officially it kind of stops now because there's no way we're getting through Jericho. And that right there is where we pick up our account in Joshua chapter 6. It says, now the gates of Jericho were tightly shut because the people were afraid of the Israelites. At this point, the, the reputation of the Israelites and their army had gone before them. It, it didn't matter what type of force opposed them. God was fighting for them. And so people were kind of scared at the Israelites at this point and, and Jericho being no different. So, so they said, you know what we're going to do? We're going to lock this place down. No one, it says, was allowed to go out or in. They're like, we're just going to close our gates. We're, we're going to play the long game. We have these really tall walls. Nobody's going to be able to get through. We're just going to wait out the Israelites. But the Lord said to Joshua, I've given you Jericho. He reaffirms that promise. He's like, you're going to walk into the promised land. Jericho is not going to be the hiccup along the way. I, I have given you Jericho, its king, and all its strong warriors. And you would expect, or I think we slow down enough to think about this, we, we all would expect that what would follow next would be like this detailed battle plan for how to get over and penetrate these walls. But, <laughs> but what God offered was, well, let's just say, I don't know, maybe a little bit unconventional. He continues talking to, to Joshua. He says, you and your fighting men should march around the town once a day for six days. It's like, okay. And, and seven priests will walk ahead of the ark, that is the Ark of the Covenant, which, which contained the, the Ten Commandments, these, these, these stone tablets that were delivered to, to Moses by God himself on Mount Sinai. The seven priests will walk ahead of the Ark, each carrying a ram's horn. And, and on the seventh day, you're to march around the town seven times with the priests blowing the horns. When you hear the priests give one long blast on the ram's horns, have all the people <laughs> shout as loud as they can. And then the walls of the town will collapse and the people can can charge straight into the town. 
So if you're paying attention at all, the, the, the big plan for how to penetrate these walls involves walking around the building, walking around the city. Uh, then it involves some blowing of horns and then hollering, shouting real loud, and supposedly the, the, the walls are just going to collapse. Now, now here's what we love to do in church. Um, we read accounts like this without even flinching. We don't really even give them a second thought, especially who those of you who grew up going to church, and we think rather calmly, without any emotion, wow, praise God, crazy story. But can we just be real people for a moment? Can, can we just take a minute and think of how absolutely preposterous this would have sounded? How, how foolish this would have looked to the people of Jericho as, as the Israelites are just walking around the walls for seven days. Like, what are they doing down there? Are they going to cast a spell on us? I mean, let's just think about Joshua for a moment. Try to put yourself in his shoes. This is kind of like his coming out party. This is his first opportunity to lead the people as Moses' grand successor. Can we even imagine what is going on in his head in this moment? It's like, um, God, I, um, I don't know if you've noticed, um, but, but the people... They really, really, really liked Moses. I mean, Moses was like their dude. And um, I, I got some big shoes to fill. And I don't, I don't think that this is going to go particularly well. I, I'm just telling you. I mean, I know, like, through you, well, anything's possible. But I think I'm going to sound pretty stupid if I go to these people and tell them that the, the, the big plan to make these walls come down and take Jericho involves, again, marching around the city, no swords, no, none of that kind of stuff, um, and, and then we're going to blow horns, and then we're just going to yell. Like, you got to understand that that, that is going to be a hard sell. So, got an idea. How about you go back up to heaven real quick, take some time in your study, you know, think about this, and how about you come back with a brilliant battle plan and say, why don't we try, like, the, the yelling at the walls thing the next town we go to? Because I really, really, really need to make a good first impression. But don't miss this. I, I want all of us to see what happens next. M most notably, how Joshua responds. <laughs> Joshua called together the priests and said, take up the Ark of the Lord's Covenant and, and assign seven priests to walk in front of it, each carrying a ram's horn. Then he gave orders to the people, march around the town and the armed men will lead the way in front of the ark of the Lord. Joshua does not flinch. It, it, it may have been only for a moment, but church, for at least a moment, he gets over what people might think of him and decides instead to be obedient to what God has asked him to do. Don't miss this. This is so important. This is the entire message in one sentence. He behaves as if what God has said can be trusted. Or perhaps even simpler, his behavior points to an expectation that God will move that God can be trusted, that God is, is going to come through. See, see, notice what he doesn't do. He, he doesn't reluctantly go to the Israelites, to the people, and say, okay, here's the deal, everybody. So, so God, I know you're waiting. He, he did give me a plan. But I just got to tell you, it's crazy. And honestly, I'm, I'm not even sure it's going to work. 
but maybe it might. So I don't know. If you want to come out and help, great. If not, no biggie. I totally get it. Sounds crazy to me too. So let's just kind of see who ends up showing up and we'll see. I don't know if God ends up doing the same. He's been up to some pretty crazy stuff lately, so maybe, but I know it, it sounds preposterous. He, he behaved in accordance with the promises of the living God. He behaved in accordance with how God had come through for his predecessor. Parting Red Seas, water flowing from rocks, food falling from the sky every day. He behaved in such a way, and in fact, would hinge his entire reputation, his entire professional career, which was just beginning, he would hinge it all on these seven days. He behaved as if what God had said could be trusted. He behaved with an expectation that God would come through, that God would move. Listen, can God work in the, in the midst of our lack of faith? Yeah. Can he move as literally everyone doubts, even those who claim to love him? Of course. Can he work in the, in the midst of our lack of obedience? He has done that and probably will continue to do so from time to time. But does he normally? No. Church, that's just a reality. That, that, that is not how he normally operates. Now again, I'll remind us, God is always present among his people. In fact, actually, Paul plainly reminds us in the early letter to the Christian church in Corinth, he says, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? And he's talking to followers of Jesus here, and he's phrasing it this way because he probably figured that some of the people had forgotten about this, which probably stands to reason that some of you who are watching and listening right now, you have probably forgotten this, that as a follower of Jesus, God quite literally, the Holy Spirit dwells inside of you. But there is a huge difference between God being present which he is among every follower of Jesus, and his presence falling on a people. It's the difference between a church service where, and you've been a part of these, where you leave and you go, yeah, it was good. There's good music, people were on key, good, good, good preaching, I, I felt inspired, felt a little even convicted. I mean, good people, I felt welcomed, I felt known. It was fine. Yeah, I don't know, maybe I'll come back next week. And, and those services... And some of you, maybe you've never been a part of this, but those services where people in mass are bawling their eyes out, sin is being confessed, adultery being confessed, pornography addiction, substance abuse, it's just being all laid out plain to see, strongholds being broken, hardened hearts given to the Lord, where we look around and we say, oh my goodness, the presence of God is all over this place. And what always precedes a movement of God is a person or, or, or a group of people operating with expectation. A, a, a people behaving like Joshua. Active faith activates the power of God. The tangible presence of God is always ushered in by the hunger of his people Church, God responds to an expectant heart. God rewards audacious, expectant faith. Yes, he honors and he responds to that. It moves the heart of God. We say this often around here. God will not force himself upon people. He already offered and took the massive step towards us when he freely gave us his son. It's now on his people to be obedient, to be hungry 
to, to expect him to move. His, his power is never ushered in by a spirit of timidity and hesitation. It, it's always a spirit of God is going to come through. Because the exact same power that parted the Red Sea, that dropped food from the sky, that rolled in plagues all over Pharaoh and the Egyptians is the exact same power that wants to work in my life today. That same God is still on his throne. That same God who raised a dead man from the grave is at work in me and wants to work in the exact same way through me. It, it was Jesus himself, Jesus' words. He, he tells us, very truly I tell you, Whoever believes in me, who believes in Jesus, will do the works I have been doing. And I think we'll all agree, Jesus did some pretty crazy stuff. He's walking on water. Lame could suddenly walk. The blind could suddenly see. He's feeding like 5,000 people with just a couple loaves and a couple fish. Nutty stuff. The works I've been doing, and they will do even greater things than these. Because he's like, I'm out of here. I'm not going to be hanging out with you one-on-one anymore. I'm going back to the Father. Jesus wasn't kidding. He meant this. This is a promise for you. The, the, the problem isn't with God. That same God is still on his throne. The, the, the problem so often it lies with us, our lack of faith, our, our lack of expectation for God's mighty power to come through, our obsession with what people think of us rather than being obsessed with the living God and his plan, the God who wants to work in this exact same way in and through you. Joshua, the, the Israelites, on this particular week, in church, I'll remind us, they didn't always get this right. In fact, you read about the Israelites and you can pick up and read about them in Exodus and those early books of the Old Testament. They often were known as a people who had a lack of faith, a lack of expectation. But on this particular week, for these seven days, they behaved as if what God said could be trusted. They behaved with an expectation that God would show up, that God would move. And wouldn't you know it, <laughs> just as is always the case, when the people heard the sound of the ram's horns, they shouted as loud as they could. And suddenly, <laughs> the walls of Jericho collapsed. And the Israelites charged straight into the town and captured it. A movement of God occurred among the Israelites that day that we are still talking about right now, thousands of years later. Church, I, I don't always get this right. Just like all of you, fear of man often reigns supreme in my life. But it never ceases to amaze me what God will do with even the smallest step of obedience. What, what God will do with a person <laughs> or people behaving with an expectation that he will move. People repenting confessing, fasting, crying out in prayer and worshiping God because of who he is, who he has always shown himself to be. We expect God to move. The God who is, who is worthy of that expectation, the God who is worthy of our trust, he who has withheld nothing from us, not even his son. And so now we choose to trust him in return. Now, a couple of closing thoughts that I'd like to leave with us, and I promise I'll be brief. 
Obedience and expectation will usually, it's the norm, will usually look foolish to the world. Which, which is why, by the way, you and I reject and deprive ourselves of, of those movements of God in our lives and, and in turn the people around us. This is exactly, again, what, what Paul was talking about. Again, in that early letter to the Christian church in Corinth, he says, For God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. As we talked about ad nauseum, we care way more about what people think of us than what God thinks of us. In church, this is why developing a relationship, spending time in his presence, reading his word, talking with him, developing a real relationship, and being obedient when he prompts, when he nudges is so important. As you see God come through, your faith grows, and in turn, your trust in him grows, and in turn, your tolerance, frankly, for the weird looks and the passive-aggressive comments, that grows as well. Because you get hooked on watching God show up in your life. Adopting children when you're perfectly capable of getting pregnant, it doesn't make sense. Falling to your knees in the middle of a worship set amongst all these people, it looks foolish. Giving away large portions of your income to the church, it seems financially irresponsible. Striking up a conversation with a random person who's pumping gas next to you and sharing something that the Holy Spirit has laid on your heart, that feels embarrassing, but tis the way of following Jesus. And so I have two questions to leave us here with this morning. One, where is God asking you to be foolishly obedient? Where is he asking you, and maybe where has he been asking you for a while now to take a step of obedience that will look foolish to the people around you? And right now, you choose to keep your eyes fixed on who goes before you. But very practically, for a lot of you, in a minute, uh, you're going to have an opportunity to exercise this because we're going to do something that we do every single week. We're going to stand and sing praises to our, our, our Lord and Savior. Let me even just ask that very frankly. Did you show up here today expecting God to move? And before you're quick to respond, yes, does your posture during this message, and more importantly, does your posture during worship consistently affirm that yes? Might it be today you choose to reject those feelings of, what is my wife, or what is my husband, or what is my boyfriend, or what is my friend? What is my child next to me going to think if I actually start to sing and kind of get into this? Instead, you choose to respond in praise to the living God who desperately wants to show up and show off in your life. Church, what if breakthrough? What if experiencing God in an entirely new way is on the other side of just taking that simple step? If you're watching right now, you think, oh, that just seems too simple. Believe it or not, what I just very specifically described happens all the time. It happened in my life. And let us remember that as we're taking these foolishly obedient steps and we're going, oh my gosh, and everything inside of us is pushing back saying, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. And you're obsessed with what other people are thinking about you. Remember, Jesus doesn't ask us to do anything that he didn't already do himself. Jesus did not hesitate to make a fool of himself when he offered himself on the cross for you. I mean, just think about that. The God of the universe subjected himself to all the limitations of humanity. He became flesh and allowed himself to be absolutely humiliated on that cross. 
and and did it all for for you. And then question number two, what do you need to start or continue circling? They went around those walls for for seven days. And, And I can promise you, because they were real human beings, just like you and I, they would go back home at the end of the night and wives would talk to husbands, and husbands would talk to wives, and families and friends would talk to each other. And they'd be like, what are we doing? We look like such idiots out there. They felt all kinds of foolish until they, and the walls came tumbling down. What do you need to keep circling? What is it that you need to keep praying for? What have you given up on that you need to start circling again? And I want to remind us one more time, with God, the outcome rarely occurs in our perceived timing or what we would perceive would be best. That's why he encourages us, hey, be patient in me, be patient in the Lord. In fact, it's in the waiting that our strength in the Lord is renewed, where our faith is deepened, where our trust is increased, where our relationship actually grows. While we wait with faith, God continues to shape and mold us. Let us be a people whose behavior points to an expectation that God will move.